1 Corinthians 14.33 For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Let's pray. Holy Father, I accept that Your Word is as relevant today as it ever was. I believe that Your Word, every word of Scripture, is applicable to us. And I believe that the Word You have before us this morning is as important for us to understand as it was for Corinth. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that You will teach us, that You will help us consider these things and seek to understand what your purpose, your intentions, what this is about from your perspective. Because Lord, honestly, there's so much of our perspective that's messed this up and confused us and caused many places, I think, Father, just to ignore it altogether. Lord, this is your word. And as always, we believe your word has something to speak into our hearts. So give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to this fellowship this morning. And open our hearts to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1968, a brand of cigarette was developed that was by what was then the Philip Morris Company. It was shrewdly marketed to a specific segment of society, that is, young professional women. You know what I'm talking about? Virginia Slims. How come you all know that? Because <laughs> <laughs> it was the 60s. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> they also had a highly memorable slogan that went along with the original ad campaign. You may remember this, those of you my age. You've come a long way, baby. <laughs> and it reflected the ERA and, and the era of women's rights and things changing in our country. And, and some of them, some of them very good things. Some of them not so good. But the reflection was, you've come a long way, baby. In the 90s, they updated it to, it's a woman thing. What, cancer? <laughs> the other one they used was, ironically, find your voice. I think lose your voice might be a better <laughs> thing for that. Ladies, let me ask you a question. Would you rather listen to Philip Morris or Jesus Christ? <laughs> Would you rather prefer a drag of smoke or breathe the spirit of the living God? See, Philip Morris said you've come a long way, baby. I believe the Lord would take us on a long journey that leads us into the arms of Jesus. And that is God's intention, regardless of the intention of manufacturers and, and, and sellers in our society. 
You've come a long way, baby. The same year Philip Morris came out with this, a cartoon was published in local newspapers that was an interesting cartoon. It it depicted the Apostle Paul, which you wouldn't even see in a cartoon these days. The Apostle Paul, in a cartoon, arriving by boat on a distant shore. And as Paul is stepping out of the boat, he's met by an angry mob of women holding up signs that say, Unfair to women! Or Paul is a male chauvinist pig! And Paul smiles awkwardly at the protesters and says, (laughs) I see you got my letter. (laughs) The truth is, anyone who sees Paul as a sexist bigot has not read and studied Paul. Has not heard the words spoken by Paul. No one, mark this, no one championed women and equality among all the prophets more than the Apostle Paul did with the exception of Jesus himself. Paul stood for women's rights. Paul embraced, in the spiritual sense, women in the church, in the fellowship. It was Paul who compared the marriage of a husband and a wife to the very love between Christ and His church. That kind of affection, that kind of care, that kind of submission, which truly runs both ways. You can read that in Ephesians 5, 22-33. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote, There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 So we can't pass off 1 Corinthians 14 as an act or a statement of bigotry. We can't say, well, he was a chauvinist, so we're just going to let that one drop. Paul's teaching was no smokescreen for chauvinism. It was God-breathed. And what we read and what we study, wherever we end up this morning, I have a sense of where that will be, you don't yet, but whatever we study here, we must not deny the Word of God and pass it off as an attitude of a man. We begin down that road and we will tear the Scriptures apart, and people have. What Paul is dealing with here in 1 Corinthians 14 with the church at Corinth is a far greater issue than gender rights. Than who has the authority, than than who's the boss. Paul is concerned in this section specifically with two primary things. Building up the body of Christ and reigning in order in the worship assembly of believers. To build the body... And to order the assembly, not that it be stolid and boring and and stiff, but that it be joyful and God-honoring and not out of control. He desires that for the church because he knows that within the church, that's how the church is built up. As we gather together, we are strengthened in fellowship. We are strengthened by the presence of the God that we are here to honor. That's the concern. That's what he's talking about in this whole section. Really, chapter 11 all the way through chapter 14. And so in verse 33, he says, For God is not of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints. And I guarantee you, where there is confusion, it is not of the Lord. That is not how he works. He doesn't throw out esoteric phrases to confuse and and twist people and and, and make us all feel like we're, we're out there. He is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I'm going to give you three things to note this morning. Just three. 
and a whole lot of stuff in between. And the first one is very simply that in this passage, God is calming our worship. Note that. God is calming our worship. You see, Paul has already written that if no interpreter is present, anyone who speaks in a tongue must keep silent. Verse 28. He's also previously directed that prophets are not to run over one another and that if someone else has a revelation, the others are to sit down and shut up, keep silent. Verse 30. That word, keep silent, used twice already and about to be used a third time, is the word in the Greek, sigao. And sigao means to hold your tongue. It's a very clear word. Keep silent. Don't speak. Hold your peace. And I want to remind you all of something that we looked at Wednesday a little bit, and that is that silence is a godly, holy thing. One of the problems that we have in culture today is there is no silence. It's never quiet. You get in your car, what's the first thing you do? The hand goes to the radio. Or you're talking, or you're clamoring, or the TV's on. You go to work out at the gym, TV's everywhere. It's a constant cacophony of noise, and God is heard best in silence. I think if there was one thing the Lord might speak to us even here this morning, it would be, shh, quiet. The Hebrew equivalent word to sagao is chasa, which also means to keep silent, to be still, or literally hush. The children of Israel were there on the, on the banks of the Red Sea. The sea raging before them, Pharaoh's army clamoring behind them, noise everywhere, and they were crying out. And they were freaking out. And they were calling to Moses and they were crying to God. And God said through Moses to the people, Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Hush. You know, parents, you get that when your kids are freaking out about something. And the first thing you've got to do, first matter of business, is calm down. Settle down. David is the one who does that for Cheryl and myself. He comes running into... I may have shared this, but this was like two years ago. I mean, he was five, maybe, five years old. Cheryl and I were having a denominational dispute and as we're discussing uh, in in our own uh, rather elevated way David runs into the middle of us holds out his hands and says calm down just everybody calm down (laughs) and we busted out laughing and I don't even know what that dispute was about hush stop your clamoring Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20 says the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. I remind you that Paul has already taught us that not only are our individual bodies temples of the Holy Spirit, but we as the church are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when the Lord is in His temple, we need to learn to keep silence. So ladies, before I even get to addressing women keeping silent in the church, understand silence is a sweet and holy thing. And allows us to hear from God. Maybe if we learned how to be silent, we'd hear Him a lot better. The last time we see the word silence used, sagao, in the Scriptures, is 
right before God is about to unleash something awesome. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. You know, kind of the calm before the storm. And then I saw seven angels who stand before God. John writes, and seven trumpets were given to them. And suddenly the trumpets begin to blow. Trumpet judgment after trumpet judgment after trumpet judgment. And the last half of the tribulation gets underway. And oftentimes, God will wait until we're silent before He begins to move. Before He begins to really work and do something. We need to learn how to be silent. It's as much an attitude of the heart as it is a behavior of the mouth. Silence is reverence for God. It's respect for God. Silence is honor first to the Lord and and then honestly to each other. That the body of Christ might be built up, might be edified in love and in unity. God is calming our worship. Prophets are not to clash one with another. My word is more important than your word. And those praying in the Spirit are not to clamor one over another or all at the same time in some noisy, non-symphonic cacophony. And Paul then adds to that this admonition, verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. And I read that and my first thought is, thanks a lot, buddy. Appreciate that, Paul. Why did he have to write that? Prophets keeping silent, that's cool. Because anybody can be a prophet. You know, and those praying in tongues keeping silent, that's cool. Anybody can pray in tongues. So it's pretty much an admonition to everybody to chill out, to calm down, to settle down, and to allow God to be honored in worship. But now, he goes after that segment of society our women, and says, ladies, Sagao, hush, keep silent in the church. My friends, this is not Paul's opinion. It's not like in chapter 7 where, where Paul was making the statement, I say and not the Lord, or I think it's a good idea that you do this. Here, he very clearly says, and I will point this out again before we're done, in verse 37, this is among the Lord's commandments. For the church. Commandment. He also says this goes all the way back to Hebrew law. Law? Aren't we under grace? Can't we just go with grace and move on to chapter 15 and the resurrection? I'd love to. <laughs> law and commandment. You know what the Bible tells us? Psalm 19.7 The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. Anyone want their soul restored? The law of the Lord will do it. He says, Psalm 19, verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You want to be able to see better? To see your way more clearly in this world? The law, the commandments. Boy, I'll tell you what. One of the things that I love about being under grace is I can subscribe to the law because I've chosen to. I can listen to the commandments of God because they purify me. So how is this law? The women are to keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. They're to subject themselves just as the law also says. How's that law? 
You won't find it in the Mosaic Law. But you will find it in Torah. In fact, you need to go all the way back, and I believe what Paul is referring to here is Genesis 3, verse 16, where to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, in our culture, that sounds horrific. He will rule over you. But the the concept of rule is really more govern. Well, I don't like that either, Pastor. Well, just stay with me. (laughs) Keep silent. (laughs) Listen, all the way back with what I have for years called the curse, all the way back, God established in the fall of Adam and Eve, He established a governing order. Perhaps it wasn't a curse after all. Now again, this is what I have taught. And I will remind you that even if it is landing as a curse of sorts, that in Jesus Christ the curse is lifted. Which is why there is neither male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. So if it's a curse, it's done in Jesus Christ. If you're outside of Christ, you're still cursed, buddy. But in Christ, it is lifted. However... Perhaps it was not a curse in the first place when God said your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. With that, perhaps God is establishing, number two, covering for his daughters. Covering for his daughters. Peter put it this way, and I'm just going to try and pull out all of the uh, offensive verses to women I can this morning. <laughs> Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, You husbands live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, if Donald Trump said that, referred to the woman as the weaker vessel... This election would be over. I mean, over. But Peter wrote that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker. And Peter is not saying, husbands, look at your wife and go, oh, you poor sweet little thing. You just, oh. We'll do what we can with you. But you know... Uh, I love how one sister put it this morning. She said, you know, when I read that, I hear that, you know, God actually fashioned woman. He made man. He fashioned woman. And and woman is like fine china. And she said that, and I'm thinking, so man, what is he, like a wooden beer stein? (laughs) He's functional! (laughs) You know? She, on the other hand, I mean... Peter says something, don't miss this. Live with her in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. And listen, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Guess what? Women were not heirs. Ever. In ancient culture. You become an heir, a co-heir. Receiving your inheritance, ladies, just as the men do, sons and daughters are all inheritors now. In Jesus Christ. So even as Peter recognizes physical differences between men and women, 
and understanding that husbands really need to show their wives, he also says, but don't forget, she's a fellow heir. And you need to show her respect and love and covering so that your prayers will not be hindered. Which almost implies that God is saying, you don't treat your wife well. I'm not going to listen to you. You take care of her. You cover her, men. Now, ladies, if if that offends you at all, the idea of covering, I would ask you why. Do you not like the idea of having someone there to look out for you, to protect, to take care of? Well, I can take care of myself. Fine. In 21st century America, we have come a long way, baby. (laughs) Jewish tradition understood the differences between men and women recognize that. Yes, there has always been the tendency for man to lord it over, and that is as wrong as the other. I'll get there in just a moment, too. But Jewish tradition accepted male and female differences and made arrangements for that, even in the synagogue system. In the larger synagogues, the women would sit in a balcony up above, and they could watch the service and, and see what's going on, but they had to be up above, and then the men were all on the floor where the action was. In smaller synagogues, the women would sit on one side of the synagogue and the men on the other side of the synagogue. And the whole idea was to to cut down on and avoid distractions, keep the main thing the main thing, which was focus on God. That same mentality remains to this day. In fact, if you go to Israel, you go to the Kotel, the Western Wall. There is a barrier that separates the women's section from the men's section, and it is a big point of contention in Israel. You might be surprised to hear. There's an Israeli women's rights group called Neshot HaKotel, and they are arguing currently for an egalitarian place of the wall. That is a place where men or women can go and there's no rabbinical oversight, just either one can go and pray at the wall there in Jerusalem. And this has been called the most covered women's issue in the history of the Israeli media. Which is really only 65, 66 years old, but still. This has been the big issue, whether women and men can pray together at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. But go back to Corinth. I share the synagogue set up because all indications are that's how the early church worshipped as well. That they just carried that concept over. That the men would be on one side of the room and the women on the other side. Or perhaps the women up in a balcony and the men down below. They would separate the sexes so as to keep the distractions to a minimum and focus on the teaching and on the worship of God. Because of that, most modern commentators look at 1 Corinthians 14 and they conclude that that's the issue. That women were at Corinth either calling down from the balcony or calling across to their husbands. I don't understand what he's talking about. I disagree with what that guy just read. And their husbands were just going, dude, really? Chattering and calling and arguing and, and even to the point some would say they were questioning teachers. Verse 34 again says the women are to keep silent in the churches... For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. Subjection, and specifically he is talking about wives, to their husbands. The word speak is an important word here. The women are not permitted to speak. The word speak is laleo. 
Laleo means speak or it means talk. Some have tried to translate that. Chatter, interrupt, or argue, but that's kind of a stretch. Taken in its plain sense, the Greek word laleo is speak. Now since Paul is dealing with order in the assembly, the assumption is made that the limitation of the problem and the prescription for it, women, silence, keep silent, was a Corinthian issue. And not a problem for the whole church. Modern commentators go there. It's only relevant to that church in that culture at that time. And that would be so easy. We could do that really with anything in Scripture we disagree with. Well, it was a cultural thing. And I warn against that because when we go there, we miss what God has for us. The plain truth of God's Word is right here for us to share together and to be built up. And if we just call it a cultural thing, we will never hear what God truly is trying to say, what He's trying to do. Well, Rick, are you saying it's not a cultural thing? I don't believe it was. I think we've got to be careful with that. Now, there are some cultural things in Scripture that you have to recognize. We just talked about one back in chapter 11, and that is head coverings for women. That Paul prescribes that. Keep, keep your heads covered, ladies, when the worship is going on. And we'll look at that verse in just a second. But do that. Well, we know culturally the issue in Corinth at the time was women with heads uncovered and heads shaved. That was the look of the temple prostitute. And they would come down the mountain and into the city in the evening. And you knew who they were simply by their heads being uncovered and shaved. Well... Culturally, if a woman walked into Walmart today, would everybody be offended or say, oh, there goes a prostitute. <laughs> she walks in there without her head covered. There's one. Oh, they're everywhere. <laughs> no, that, clearly that's, that's a cultural issue. But you can't just snap a finger and make a verse go away because you think there's culture involved. We need to recognize the culture and then look for the truth that is in it for all of us. Another cultural thing. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't do it. (laughs) We talked about that recently. Romans 16. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. He'll do it again. I almost said, greet one another with a homey kiss. That'd be funny. (laughs) What's up, bro? Mwah. First Corinthians 16, he'll say the same thing. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Hey, there is a cultural relevance to that that we can understand. And what he's talking about is show affection to each other. Love each other. You know, brothers give each other a hug. The kissing thing is, you know, whatever. That's cultural. But So there are those things. But we must not assign chunks of God's Word to the trash bin of irrelevant history. Oh, because that was Corinthian culture. What's interesting here to me is that Corinth-only cultural interpretation appears, listen, exclusively in Bible commentaries after 1960. You don't see it before then. Now, I, I, I may have missed one, but Cheryl can tell you I have been poring over commentaries this last week trying to see what the broader spectrum was, and it became clear that the older commentaries, 201, were in agreement with what this passage meant. Oh, really? What do they say? That the women are to keep silent in the churches. Commentaries written after 1960 and obviously influenced by where our culture has gone 
have all manner of interpretations and different ways of, of discounting this or undermining it or watering it down or explaining it away. It's amazing the hoops that the post-1960 commentators go through to try and, and do that. And now look at verse 33. Read this with me. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, good Greek would probably put a period right after God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That's a good summation of that paragraph, and it wraps things up very well. But the following phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, well, is that part of verse 33, or is it part of verse 34? It makes a difference in your reading. If it's part of verse 34, then it would read this way. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches. Uh Uh-oh. If I read it that way, suddenly this is not a Corinthian issue. This is an all-church issue. Paul is referring to all the churches, as in all the churches of the saints. This is a prescription for every church, not just Corinth. Interesting, again, the pre-1960s commentators... I'll go with the first translation, and that is, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, period. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches. It's only later that we move the period and we divide it and we change it. And what's interesting to me, (laughs) if you want to ask the question, is it verse 33 or is it verse 34, where does the all the churches of the saints go? Are you with me here? It doesn't matter. Because Paul repeats it in verse 34 anyway. If you want to assign it to verse 33, that's great. Leave it right there. But in verse 34, he says the women are to keep silent in the churches, plural. In the ecclesias, not just in Corinth. So already we got to bust apart the notion that this was a Corinth problem and the prescription was limited to Corinth. Paul says, no, in all the churches, the women are to keep silent. Hmm. The plain text indicates this was not a solution for Corinth only, but a standard of the early church. And I think the same standard still applies today. I actually wrote the word duck in my notes. (laughs) Okay, Rick, if this still applies, listen, what does it mean that women are to keep silent in the church? Well, let me very clearly explain to you what it does not mean. Let's start right there. Covering for his daughters, which is, again, what we're talking about, calming our worship, covering his daughters, does not mean the exclusion of participation in the assembled church. Let me restate that. Covering for his daughters is not... Exclusion from participation in the assembled church. That a woman keeps silent in the church does not mean that she cannot be engaged, involved, or even vocal in the church assembly. Well, how do you know that? Let me ask you, what is the best Bible commentary out there? Anyone know? It's the Bible itself. You want a good commentary on the Bible, use the Bible. Because the rest of it is all men trying to figure it out. So, turn in your Bibles. We're going to use the Bible as our commentary this morning in several places. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. 
Now, I've already told you, understand, 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 14, this whole section, and 13, which is the love chapter we looked at last week. In this whole section, Paul is referring to talking about the assembly and how to rightly go about the assembly. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he's already talked about their problem with the Lord's Supper, coming to the table of the Lord, and how they had made such a mess of that. And he's giving them orderly standards for worshiping together and, and edifying the body. So in that context of the assembled church, he says in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 11, Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. There is a cultural issue there. However, note what Paul just did. As he calls for calm in Corinth, he assumes women are praying and prophesying. And he tells them how to do it. Therefore... The women should keep silent in the church. You would have to add with a little asterisk, unless they're praying or prophesying, because that was already prescribed without prohibition. Already, Paul has said, listen, ladies, if you're given a prophetic word, then in the culture of the day, which if your head's uncovered, it just doesn't look good, make sure you bring that prophecy with your head covered. Ladies, if you're going to pray in the assembly, because he is talking about the assembly, make sure your head's covered. We don't cover our heads today, again, because there is a cultural difference. But Paul assumes the praying and the prophesying of the women in the assembly. So he gives instruction without prohibition. Keep silence in those cases, praying and prophecy at least, cannot mean zip the lip. It's not a generic restriction against feminine verbalizations in the gathered assembly. Otherwise, why are any of you ladies singing? If a woman is to keep silent, all of our songs should be holy, holy, holy. I mean to be cool and manly, but it would lack that fine china. (laughs) Daughters of the Lord, the Lord has always actively involved women in His divine work. Ask the four prophesying daughters of Philip. Four prophetesses. Ask Priscilla, wife of Aquila, Bible teacher. Ask Phoebe. Ask, in Romans 16, all of the women of Rome that Paul calls out as co-laborers, Mary, Junius, Tryphena, Trophosa, Persis, and Julia. Ask Yodia and Suntuke. Two women who are forever remembered as the two who didn't get along. Philippians chapter, wouldn't you like to be one of those? You know, Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, I beg Yodia and and Suntuke to get along. And that's forever in Philippians. I'm sure they're like thanking Paul for that. But you know what we often miss with those two ladies? Verse 3 of Philippians 4, which says, They are women who have shared my struggle in the gospel. So Paul had no problem working with men, with women, assigning different ones to different things, saying, let's get the gospel message out. Let's make sure the world hears about Jesus Christ. Go back before that. From a Jewish perspective, we see the prophetess, Anna, in the temple, prophesying at the time of Jesus' baby dedication. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. The Old Testament Scriptures also account a number of prophetesses. Miriam, 
Huldah, Isaiah's wife. Did you know the prophet Isaiah's wife was a prophetess? Isaiah chapter 8 verse 3 calls her a prophetess. Some have tried to deny that, saying, well, they, they just call her that because she's his wife. Well, no other wife of a prophet is called a prophetess. So we have those three ladies. The old rabbis, they include Sarah, Hannah, Abigail, and Esther on a list of eight prophetesses. Now, those four are not specifically called prophetesses, but they spoke prophetically. So perhaps we could add them. But of course, then there's, then there's Deborah. Deborah's awesome. Deborah in Judges chapter 4. Let's go to that commentary. Judges chapter 4. Turn back in the Old Testament, back to the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Turn to the book of Judges chapter 4. I've I've just got to show you something, partially because this story is so cool. Deborah is called both a prophetess and a judge of Israel. A deliverer. She was one of the judges. And we also get to meet in Judges chapter 4 another woman, a contemporary of Deborah's. Not a prophetess, but she sure knew how to pin a man down. Verse (laughs) 1. Then the sons of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was the prior uh, judge. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you ten thousand men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon. I will give him into your hands. So Deborah prophesies this to Barak. Barak says to her in verse 8, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. You could say that Barak was leading from behind. Verse 9. Verse 9, she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless... The honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Okay, Barak, you're not willing to step it up? You're not willing to take your rightful place? Okay. God's still going to get His work done, and it's going to be by more delicate hands than yours, my fellow beer mug. Verse 10. Well, then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh. Ten thousand men went up with him. Deborah also went with him. And they routed Sisera's army. Every last one. Wiped them all out. The Bible tells in the preceding, or the, the uh, continuing words here that every last one was wiped out except Sisera who jumped off his chariot and ran away. Pick it up in verse 17. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Yael the wife of Heber, or Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hatzor and the house of Heber the Kenite. 
Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink. I'm thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. And he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here? You shall say no. But Yael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground. (laughs) Yeah! That's what I'm saying! And she was the biggest headache he ever had. For he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. Yeah, you think? Verse 22, And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Yael came out to meet him and said, Come and I will show you the bedroom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. And so God got it done. And God did what God desired to do. And it's not just a cool adventure story here. God does not exclude women from participation. And the Lord will get the job done even even when men abdicate their responsibility. Even when the men step back and don't do what they are called to do. God's going to get the job done. And here's the thing I want you to get this morning. He's calming worship. He is covering His daughters. And at the same time, in 1 Corinthians 14, God is calling up His sons. He is calling up His sons. Let's turn over to another Bible commentary. Go over to 1 Timothy. Far end of your Bible, go to the other side. 1 Timothy chapter 2. If we're going to deal with it, let's just deal with it all. 1 Timothy chapter 2. God is wise enough not to give us single verses as proof text for how we are to live and understand His Word. He gives us His whole Word and invites us to study the whole thing. So verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, after Paul calls on young Pastor Tim to make his church a praying church, which is vital to the health of any church, not just the health, but the work of any church. He says in verse 8, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Doesn't mean he doesn't want the women to pray. But he is calling the men to their responsibility, a responsibility that is often abdicated by us guys. I've told you before, it's easy to get a group of women to show up and pray. We call for prayer, the women show up. We call for prayer, rarely, or at least in few numbers, do the men show up. Guys, at 5.30 every Wednesday night, we're meeting in the fireside room if you want to join us and pray. And if I can make you feel just guilty enough, we're here praying. And I know we have groups of men who meet on Tuesday morning and who meet on Wednesday morning, and man, they're praying together. And guys, if that those mornings work better for you, show up and go pray. What, just pray? Yes! Because we could use some fashioning after the Spirit of God. I want men in every place lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. See, we like wrath and dissension. Yeah! Let's duke it out. Yeah! Rams are playing Seahawks today. If the Seahawks lose, 
there will be ramifications. <laughs> that actually came from Jeff D'Angelo. I wanted to give you full credit for that. Ramifications. Was that you, Penelope? Oh, so it was from the wife. <laughs> anyway, he calls the men to the responsibility of prayer. I am absolutely convinced that the strength to bring in the harvest that we are called to bring in is not going to be exercised in a gym. It will be exercised among sons of God who are lifting up holy hands in prayer. And if we want to be a fellowship that, man, we are moving in the harvest and we're seeing people get saved, it's not going to happen until our men start praying more. So gentlemen, brothers, let's pray. Let's pray together. Let's pray in our homes. Let's pray in our assembly. Let's pray in our small groups. Let's be men of prayer. Let's be known as a praying church. And you will see God move in remarkable ways. Back to the daughters. 1 Timothy 2.9, he continues. Likewise, now the words I want are not there. This is not what Paul wants. Paul is speaking by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Likewise, women adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, and not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments. So does that mean you can't shop at Nordstrom? Does that mean you shouldn't braid your hair? Okay, there's some cultural stuff here as well. Paul is saying it's not the outward appearance that's the most important thing, ladies. Don't worry about that so much. I want you to adorn yourself in a different way. Verse 10, rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. Now stop right there. Ladies, if you don't want to make a claim to godliness, you don't need to listen to 1 Corinthians 14 or 1 Timothy 2. Shut your Bibles and don't worry about it. If you don't want to make a claim to godliness, fine. Just don't do what Paul's about to say. Just ignore this. It doesn't apply to you. This is only for those women who truly want to be godly. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Ouch. I've been asked about this perhaps more than any other passage by women. Paul counsels Timothy at Ephesus to call up men to pray. Why? I think because it is against our natural tendency to do so. So he has to tell us to do so. And then he has Pastor Tim have the women learn quietly. I'm not going to say whether that's against their natural tendency. But again in verse 12. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Okay. Paul, what's the deal? Paul's co-laborers, Priscilla and Aquila, were co-Bible teachers. Did not Priscilla teach a man? She did. I mean, if you're not sure what the answer is, Then Priscilla and Aquila both, Acts chapter 18, verse 26, tells us that Apollos began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I would call that teaching. 
And there is nothing in Scripture that says she was wrong to do it. In fact, Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, is highlighted as one of the true champions of faith in the first century church. I I told you this when we studied Acts, and I love it. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned six times. Three times it's Priscilla and Aquila. Three times it's Aquila and Priscilla, completely equal. So it doesn't matter whose name comes first. They work together for the sake of the gospel. And together they taught Apollos. And I would say to you, brothers, that any man who refuses to learn from a woman is, well, let me use a Greek word for it, idiotus. I can't tell you how many times, and, and my wife would deny it, but how many times... I'm struggling with a passage and I talk to her and I understand what I need to say. Where I get insight and learning and understanding from Cheryl. She's teaching a man. Paul's not saying, I would not have it. He's talking about something else here and we need to recognize this. What what does this mean? I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Well, the word teach there is instructive. It's didasco. And didasco is where we get our word didactic. I think I've shared this before, but didactic teaching or training is authoritative. It's what I'm doing right now. This is didactic teaching. Wednesday night, it is didactic teaching. We're going verse by verse through the Word of God, and we're saying, what does God prescribe for us as followers, for the church, and for people to be saved? Didactic teaching. It's authoritative in nature because it is based in and on the very Word of God. And he says, I don't allow a woman to didasco. He also says, or exercise authority over a man. That word is often teo, and it literally means to wrest control from, or to usurp, or to overthrow. So the real issue, what Paul is talking about here, I do not allow a woman to authoritatively teach or usurp over a man. He's talking about dominance. Dominance is not okay for a woman to dominate the man. By the way, it is not okay for the man to dominate the woman either. Neither one is Christ-like. We do not see a Jesus who was a dominator. We see a Jesus who loved and who showed grace and compassion. Yes, He taught the truth, but He was of grace. And if we are to pattern ourselves, brothers, after Jesus, we're not going to dominate and lord it over women either. But specifically, Paul is addressing women, and he says, and they should not be in the position of dominating or lording it over or standing above or taking authority over a man. Listen to this. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.34, women are not, quote, permitted to speak. That word speak, laleo, is a parallel word in the Scriptures for teach. It's, it's used of Jesus throughout His ministry of public speaking. That is teaching and preaching. Mark chapter 2, verse 2. Many were gathered together, so there was no longer any room, not even near the door. And He was speaking the word to them, laleo. Jesus is speaking the word. Matthew 13, verse 3. And He spoke many things to them in parables. Laleo. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. Any question as to whether or not Jesus' speaking was authoritative? He was an authoritative teacher speaking the very Word of God because He is the Word of God. And so as He spoke, the Word was proclaimed. And I personally believe 
This is not going to go far enough for some of you, and it will not, and it goes too far for some of you. So let's just recognize that. I personally believe the limitations that we are given in 1 Corinthians 14 and here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 are specifically related to public teaching preaching. That Paul says in the assembled church where men and women are gathered together, the women should not be the teachers. I was asked, well, what about like women's Bible studies? Can a woman teach other women? Absolutely. But when the men are gathered, well, what about in a small group? You know, we start to get into some really interesting arguments. We're talking about where the authoritative word is being taught and preached and shared. Well, what, because men are just better at it? I don't think so. Not at all. I can tell you this much. That if the limitations are, as I understand, that is the preaching of the Word of God, that it does not include, keeping silence does not include praying, singing, prophesying, or moving in the other operations of the Spirit as directed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. That that's for men and women together. There is one limitation that seems clear in Scripture, and that is the preaching of God's Word. Well, that's easy for you, Rick. You're a man. I understand that. But I'm not the one who wrote this. So why then, if that's the case, why put limitations on a woman preaching? Keep going. Verse 13 in 1 Timothy 2. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Listen, this is huge. Don't read into it cultural attitudes that says women are not treated fairly and therefore this is not fair. Set that aside if you can for a moment. And listen to what Paul says. I don't have women in the position of teaching in the assembly because the woman was deceived. Okay, but that was Eve and that's not me, Pastor. Stay with me on this. Spirituality is the natural desire of women. So much more so than men. Ladies, let me ask you a question. How many of you, show of hands, deeply desire godliness? Spirituality? Spiritual things? Man, that has to be developed in the heart of a man. It takes time to get there. Because our first inclination is fix it. Get it done. Do something. Whatever you do, do something. Women are far more adept at spiritual things. And I am speaking as one who has been in ministry 27 years and I have watched it over and over. If you call for a prayer meeting, the women will be there. If you want to sit down and and discuss things biblically, the women are in. The men have to be brought along. We need to be told to lift up holy hands in prayer. We need to learn how to move in the things of the Spirit that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 because naturally we don't do that. Women are far more likely to flow in the Spirit. And you husbands, you know what I'm talking about. Our wives are the ones who seem to be dialed in and more sensitive to what God is doing and saying more than we are. And we hear from them and then we gather with the rest of the guys and go, yeah, well, the Lord was talking to me. Okay, it was my wife. (laughs) 
There is something to our nature in the way that God developed us. I said this recently. He developed us to need each other, man and woman, as together an expression in marriage, a picture of God in the church. But understand this, that the women being more sensitive to spiritual things, more desirous of godliness, that's the danger too. The other side of the coin is there is a danger of deception because of that very thing. And it's not just Eve's problem. It's more that Eve was a woman that she was deceived than that it was Eve. How do you know? Well, listen. The devil's deceit. One bite of the fruit. And he said, Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve was in. Yes. So if I eat this, I'll actually be more like God? And I do not believe it was a pride thing that Eve wanted to elevate herself above God, but she loved God. And to be more like God, what could be better? Which is why the Bible tells us absolutely clearly the woman was deceived, the man sinned. Now, the woman was deceived and sinned, but it was because she was deceived. The man just made a conscious choice, I'm going to eat the apple because she isn't whatever. I am going to sin. This teaching prohibition is not a punishment for Eve's sin as much as a protection against it. I am going to protect you from this, daughters, God would say. And by the way, for his part, again, Adam knew what he was doing. Such that throughout the New Testament Scriptures, if you want to talk about what's fair... Eve is never blamed for sin entering the world. Not once. Every time we talk about sin coming into the world, it's because of what Adam did. Now, my inclination would be to do exactly what Adam did. What's that? It was her fault! You're blaming me for sin? She's the one who started it. That's exactly what Adam did. Well, the woman beguiled me and I did eat. Eve is not blamed. Sisters, isn't that amazing? The only thing, we see Eve mentioned twice in the New Testament, and in both situations, she was deceived. That's the reference. Not that she barreled headlong into sin. Adam did that. Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Even over all those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Which means you don't have to sin like Adam. You're going to sin, and that's the deal. The other thing I think is, what a shame Adam wasn't there. Where was Adam? When Eve was deceived? I mean, was, was he off watching a game? <laughs> Notice what the devil did. He finds Eve and he comes to her and the conversation is with her alone. And Adam is not there. And from that point forward, God says, your desire will be for your husband. He will govern you. Implication. Husbands, be with your wives. Cover them. Look out for them. Don't be absent when the devil comes knocking on the door. Someone after first service said to me, and after they shared this, I said, this is why I always preach longer second service than first service. So if you want a shorter teaching, come on first service. Because I hear things and it all generates and then I begin to share the extra stuff. Someone said, well, I thought that Adam was with Eve. Because if you look a little further in Genesis chapter 3 where the story takes place, it says that she turned and she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. So two possibilities. One, he wasn't with her when she's talking with Satan. 
but then he shows up and now he's with her and she hands him some fruit and he knows he's sinning and does it. Or, what is worse is Adam was right there and doesn't say a thing. As the devil is deceiving his wife, he just stands there, wimp, and says nothing. Either way, it does not look good for the man. Either way, the woman was deceived. And because of this, Paul says, speaking by the Spirit of God, I do not allow a woman to teach or usurp authority over man in the gathered assembly in the church. I don't do that. Why? Because she was deceived and it can happen again. By the way, it does happen. Let's go just a little bit further with this. I know we're over time, but the teachers and helpers are just going to have to deal with it. Verse 15, as long as we're in hot water, women will be preserved or saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Okay, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 14. That word saved, so-and-so, Yes, it's the word that we use for salvation. No, a woman bearing children is not how she gets saved eternally. We already know how you get saved eternally, right? Through faith in God's grace. We are all saved by grace, period. So don't confuse that. What Paul is saying there when he says women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, sanctity, with self-restraint, he's saying women will find their greatest satisfaction in that place. Their greatest sense of fulfillment will be in that. It doesn't mean that women without children cannot find fulfillment in life or satisfaction. God may have a different plan for different ladies. And there are some who will remain celibate for life and be blessed by God in that. Some who will not have children because of the life that God has called them to by His will. Okay, that's fine. But in general, by nature... Satisfaction and fulfillment for a woman never comes of dominating men. It always is found in raising up godly children and maintaining godly families. And Timothy would absolutely agree with that. Timothy receiving that letter from Paul. Hey, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother, Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Yeah, Rick, that is still so old school. That's just not where we're at today. It's an archaic mentality. You are out of step with our times. Quickly, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Okay, so understand what Paul's about to say applies to right now. This is not creation. This is not in the garden with Adam and Eve. This is right now. Difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Who will be that way? says men and then it goes on and says holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power avoid such men as these for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses and I would suggest to you that the impulse is godliness that the impulse is spirituality 
This is an end times warning that, sisters, recognizes the exact same old spiritual risk, the deception of Eve. The risk is still there because the nature is still there. Bros, the question is, where will Adam be the next time the old serpent comes knocking on Eve's door? Where will we be in this? God is establishing a covering for women that also calls up men at the same time and He knows exactly what both need. That's the issue. He knows what women need. He knows what men need. And so He has designed this thing for us both to flow and function the way we were made to. And that is not male chauvinism. It is godly chivalry, which I think we could use a bit more of in our culture today. Verse 35, back in 1 Corinthians 14. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. We've already established what speaking was. There is a key two-word phrase in the middle of this verse. Note it, at home. And I know what that sounds like when I say it, again, in our culture. The woman must learn at home. Oh, okay, barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. I see what you're saying. i got to be at home. First of all, understand that Paul is saying that the women should learn. Which in the first century was not the way it was. Which in Afghanistan and other Middle Eastern countries today, it is not the way it is. What we take for granted in our country that women can learn alongside men anywhere in any way, which is wonderful, and they should is not the way it is in the whole world, and it was not the way it was in the first century where most women were illiterate. And Paul says, hey, they should ask their husbands. They should be instructed. They should mature in faith and in the knowledge of the Word of God. And that was always the pattern in Judaism too. The instruction and the training in the home and the tendency for it to fall on the wife, the woman in the home, to train up and instruct the children... More so than the man. But the phrase in the home, my friends, home is the heart of maturity. The home is where God designed for most of it to happen. For women, for children, and for men as well. And what has our culture done but ripped us out of the home? So that men are off this way and women are off this way and kids are latchkey kids, which was a concept that did not exist before the Second World War. There was no such thing as latchkey kids, kids who show up at home with their own key to the house because mom and dad aren't going to be there until five or six or seven at night. It's not the way it was. God is covering His daughters. He is calling up His sons. And back on you guys, what happens when a husband is asked biblical questions at home? He must either know the Word or at least consider his own biblical illiteracy and repent. Because if my wife is going to ask me a question at home, then the responsibility is on me to be able to answer it and to know the Word of God. Matthew Henry says, If it be a shame for her to speak in the church where she should keep silent... It is equally a shame for him to be silent when he should speak. And again, this doesn't mean the Lord can't or hasn't used women in powerful ways to speak God's Word. In fact, let me be clear about this. This is not an issue of intellect. 
This is not an issue of verbal acuity, of leadership capability. No one is saying that a man is more capable than a woman, therefore that's why a man should be preaching the Word. That is not what the Bible says. It never says that. That's not the issue here. The issue is God establishing roles for women and roles for men that we need because it calls us into the place, me as a son, you ladies as daughters, calls us all into a place where we best function and the body is built up. And back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says in verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And he goes on, the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. We often see God telling someone to do the exact opposite of what they are strong in. And I know this much. God's ways always honor God first. Verse 36. Paul says, Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come from you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. And verse 38, but if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. That is a heavy, stern, serious pronouncement. You want to ignore God's word? You're ignored. You don't want to recognize what God is prescribing here? You will not be recognized. But let me ask you this. In rejecting the plain teaching of God's word, would we actually be failing to recognize Him? If we were to argue against God's Word by our own civil rights, based on our own societal norms, based on our changing culture, then are we failing to recognize His heart for all sons and daughters to establish calm, peace in our worship, to cover His daughters with grace and affection, and to call up His sons... This is not about male or female privilege. It is about the worshipful recognition of God as Father. Consider Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus disregarded equality. He said, I don't need to be equal, I just need to honor my Father. And for us as sons and daughters this morning, how are we honoring our Father? And I pray, Father, that what we sense from this is not anything that would divide sons and daughters, but cause us all to feel the compassionate grace of our Father who knows best and who loves most. As we come to the cross this morning, we do so setting aside our will for yours. In Jesus' name, Amen. So remarkable to me, as Jesus hung on the cross, that heart of covering 
that God has always had for His daughters, we see on the cross, don't we? As He hung there, He looked down, He saw His mother, Mary. And He saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, standing off to the side. And He says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Even on the cross, Jesus wanted to make sure Mary was covered. And I believe that's God's heart for you, sisters. I believe it's God's heart for you, brothers, to seek to be like Jesus in your relationship to your wives, to mothers, to sisters, to daughters. And that together we reflect, not independently and not individually, but together we as men and women reflect the very nature of God in our fellowship. Please come forward. There will be people at the tables. I'll be up front. And let's share a time of ministry and koinonia together now as we sing.